In a world where modern media pushes the bounds of imagination, two men embark on a journey to discover lost heroes, daunting villains, and heart-wrenching conflict. Join them in their quest in the never-ending narrative. Well, hey guys, this is the Never Ending Narrative. I'm Matt Yeager. And I'm Pat Osmick. And we're coming to you. This is episode two. Can you believe we made it all the way to episode two? Woohoo! Oh my goodness. It's, it's been a long time, and uh, we really appreciate you guys supporting us this whole time. <laughs> and uh, today, what we're going to talk about is what uh, we're going to talk about world building uh, in, in writing and in, in, in films and in TV. What you want or at least what I want, is to be able to feel like I'm in this world. I feel like I'm a part of it. I understand it. And that helps me uh, believe the story a little bit more. Uh, Pat, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I really like these visuals like when you're, when you're reading stuff. Like, like, Pat, can you do something for me right now? Could you just close your eyes? Okay. And just imagine you're sitting in a city park. Oh, yeah. Light rain is coming down. Mm. You can hear dogs play in, in the background. Mm. And someone walking step by step coming closer to you and sitting down on the park bench near you can you imagine can you imagine that with your with your visual eyes pat oh i got the scene right in front of me and i mean that just kind of it just really brings you down in there you know and i mm-hmm. I, I i really like that a lot so that's what we're going to talk about today uh i think first off what we should talk about is things like we were just talking about uh where these little details just kind of build up the world for you. So uh, one of the, the examples that I like to go to is in one of our favorite shows, Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, every episode, they uh, essentially have to build a new world for you. Yeah. Uh, spaceships, worlds, frozen tundras. Uh, and even a lot of times they have to base on, on our own world, but in different parts of it, like in the past and the future. All these things have kind of changed. Uh, and so one episode... They go to future future Earth, where things have changed a lot, but it's still, you know, we're still humanity, we're still on this world, uh, but, you know, different little things have changed. And right as they get there, the doctor uh, comments, he can smell the apple grass. Hmm. I think this is such a, a an interesting use of, we well, we know what apples are, we know what grass is, but now in your mind, you have to make... What apple grass is? What's apple grass? <laughs> what is it? Uh, and so I think that really kind of shows that things have changed, mm-hmm. but things are still you know kind of like what you're what you're used to. Yeah, and, and I love um, I guess TV shows that can do something like that because there's always the the uh, I guess the um, uh, tendency that okay we've got all these special effects and things and we just we just want to show it um, and. But it, you lose some of the wonder of it. Like, you know, if, if you're thinking about uh, uh, reading a book, um, that can be so much more engrossing because your imagination fills in the gaps. Absolutely. And, you know, if someone just throws out something and then your mind goes like, oh, what is that? What is that? Trying to fill in. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are the implications of that? And I love how 
in film or TV when uh, you can bring a little bit of that magic in rather than show something to talk about it and let people's imaginations wander. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a really cool thing. Yeah, and I, for some reason that reminded me of when you were talking about special effects like uh, in in lieu of something else that could be really descriptive or really click with your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I really like when in different TV shows you'll see like they'll go to a market. And in a market, it's just really without having to say something in your face, mm. you can grasp little parts of the culture yeah. when you see, you know, what kind of merchants are there? Are they trying to swindle you? Is this like a town of like thieves or is everybody really helpful out? Like, oh, man, you couldn't like really afford like this, this bag of rice, but I'll help you out a little bit today. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these little things can kind of bring the mood of of where you're at mm-hmm. and bring a lot of context to it. Yeah. I think it's about um, having confidence in your world to not be obvious, to not beat people over the heads with something, mm-hmm. to have the confidence to just throw out something subtle and to realize that maybe not everyone's going to get it, but it makes it that much more rich whether you realize it or not. Right, because whether you realize it or not, it's part of that world. Yeah. And I really like it when you can tell that the creator – has had this world in their head the entire time. Uh, it, it sometimes gets a little bit uh, hairy when people try to... Like, okay, so here's a good example is fan fiction. Mm-hmm. A lot of times uh, in fan fiction, you're, you're basing it off a world that you don't necessarily understand because you're not the creator of that world. Yeah. So you, you've read the books maybe, you've seen the shows or whatever, but... That doesn't necessarily mean that you understand what like what drives the world, what makes that world spin around on its axis. Mm. Uh, and so when you're writing fan fiction, unfortunately, a lot of times it kind of ends up to be a little bit just kind of hits like the face of you and just flops off like someone threw a pancake at your face. Yeah. Um, you know, and so things like that. Uh, but a really good example of when a creator under, like understands their world fully is for me, of course, is Lord of the Rings. Hmm. I mean, you open up the books, you immediately, like the first couple of pages, you see the map of like the continent. Yeah. And you start seeing places. You start looking there a little bit. Obviously, you're not going to like uh, just read over every single little thing, but then you start the book. And I don't know about you, but like when I was reading it in high school, I would always, every time they were like mentioning like a place here, a place there, you'd go back to the map. Uh-huh. You're like, okay, they're going this way. They're heading east. Uh, or they're heading north to the pass or whatever like that. Yeah. And that, I think, is just so important when you're doing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, yeah, it just it just falls flat and you just kind of feel like, oh, okay, they're kind of randomly going here or randomly going there. I don't know if you have an example of that. Right, yeah. I mean, um, one, one of the shows that I've you know loved or really enjoyed over the years was Lost. Um, that was one of the things that uh, I got sucked in, uh, I think, during season two when it started. Caught up on the DVDs. And, okay. Uh, we, uh, actually, at work, we had a whole group of people where we would get together over lunch and we'd watch an episode of Lost, <laughs> like, every day at lunch. Um, and uh, so it was this huge thing. And, uh, I mean, that, that was an example of people, I think, putting some massive effort into building this world and this crazy place to drop people into and to explore and uh 
I mean, the, the, the great thing about it is because it, it spawned all of these, uh, these theories. It was like they would throw out this little tantalizing little bit and the people would like spend days and days and days or months and years, you know, theorizing what does this all mean? How does it tie together? What's really going on with the uh-huh. island? What are the answers? And um, I mean, that was, that was fun. I mean, I think that's an example of it, uh, of, of part of it done well, that they could spawn that much interest and creativity in their audience. But I think as the show went on, I started to get a little bit jaded with things. Okay. I mean, the the first thing is, like, the the island was huge and it was big, but I don't know if I ever really got a physical sense for the place. Sure. They showed a lot of different locations, but they were almost just, like, fixed, you know, sets or scenes or whatever and never really got a, a sense for how things were related to each other it's like hey let's go visit the black rock and you have you know walking through the woods walking through the woods walking through the jungle hey we're there it's like okay i i, I don't i don't understand how this is all related it doesn't feel like a real place to me it just feels like all of a sudden they got plopped into this other location it's just kind of like uh you remember when we were kids the, the scooby-doo cartoons when they're like oh we got to go back to the mansion and they're like <laughs> Ba-da-da, cut to the mansion uh-huh. like oh oh i guess we're here now <laughs> yeah okay. some, some animated gif of them running yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah, no, that's that's a fantastic point, and I think that that like you said, that either connects with your audience or it doesn't. Um, I'm actually looking at the the Princess Nausicaa books hmm. uh, on my counter, and it reminds me of the movie Princess Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. And the the thing about that is that you understand that you're in this world, but right now, all you know is like this little village on the edge of the sea in this little valley. Hmm. And you, you, they start off the movie, they show other villages that have been corrupted by this, um, by this toxic forest. And so you, they, they really show how it's creeping and creeping up on different parts and that the Valley of the Wind Village is one of like the last holdouts. And so I think that it did a really great job of showing that even though we're just in this village and all you know right now is this village. Uh, it it gives a good reason of why your whole scope of the world has kind of just been marginalized down to this little village. And so you're okay with, okay, we're just in this village right now. Like we don't have to understand everything that's going on all around the world right now. Hmm. And, and so I think that being able to portray like why the scope has been, uh, been taken down to hmm. this small point also is a good part of world building. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and I think, I, I definitely think that it, it can work to have a smaller scope for a movie. Not yeah. everything needs to be some, you know, grand uh, epic that spawns, you know, sprawls continents and mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. But I think to make it work, um, you need to have little touch points and little, little glimpses of the world beyond. So mm-hmm. that it doesn't feel like a walled garden, mm-hmm. you know, un- unless, you know, maybe that's the world that you live in. They really are cut off from something, but, um, you know, you don't want it to end up being like, a you know, maybe to draw a video game parallel, you know, uh, uh, modern warfare, uh, map where you've got like a, li- <laughs> a literal invisible wall right there yep, where you the can't world get past. stops, yeah. you know, just to have some suggestion or idea that the world extends on this is what it's like and that there's a richness there, but you don't necessarily need to go into it. Yeah. And I was uh, thinking about half-life two and I think they really did a great job of that Mm. because they, they throw you in this city and a lot of times there are points where you're all alone. 
And you would think that you being all alone and like not seeing people around you would take away from that world. But especially in like Ravenholm, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm the only person here that's not. Oh my goodness, except for the creepy guy. Oh, that creepy guy with the shotgun. Yeah, and so like they they kind of uh, add that little point halfway through like Ravenholm, mm-hmm. but. The best part about that is that they wanted you to feel just very secluded, very on your own. Yeah. You don't you don't see people down this alley. You you just you're wondering if you're seeing like evil things coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think that that was a great way of of giving a reason for constricting the the scope. And it was also filling the filled the little world that you had with you. They're like this yeah. this is you. This is you filled up. Uh unfortunately I was always not filled up on my ammo, and so it was even more scary for me. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but there are times, though, when there's creators who restrict the world, but then they don't they don't fill it up to the point where I feel okay with it. Hmm. Uh, my example is uh, recently. Well, we remember when we were kids. There was the cartoon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Loved it. Yeah, it was one of my favorites. And recently, Nickelodeon rebooted it. It's now like a CGI kind of cartoon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was very excited. I was, you know, I wanted to watch it. I don't care. It's a kid's show. I, I'm going to watch it. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I got really disappointed, though, because the one of the biggest things about the Ninja Turtles is you always know what city is the Ninja Turtles in. Hmm. It's in New York City. Uh, you can tell because they love New York style pizza. Uh, you know, there's there's always people everywhere. Yep. Uh, whenever they ha- would have to go up to the surface and it was daytime, they'd have to wear trench coats. They'd have to you know, hide themselves amongst humanity. And it was always very fun that way. In this new reboot, there's no one anywhere. <laughs> Pat, there's, there's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and there's the villain. And if for some reason they need a citizen, they will throw like one or two in there. <laughs> the citizen will get mauled by, uh, you know, whatever is going on. And that's it. And so I'm watching the first season of this, and it just felt so empty all the time. It just felt like it wasn't New York City, the city that never sleeps, the yeah. living city. There's no one anywhere. It was I, I couldn't get past it, honestly. Mm. It was just a world that was not something that I was connecting with. So, so why do you think that they did that? I mean, was it, was it for some artistic uh, reason, or do you think it was just laziness? I mean, we've gone pretty far with... with uh, CGI these days, mm-hmm. but I, I'm, I'm not a CGI guy at all. I don't know anything about this, but I can imagine that there's a lot of extra work when you're adding just all these people and like how they move, yeah. uh, adding all these animations where people like, you know, as crowds have to like move a certain way and like look realistic and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I'm imagining it's a lot of work. Yeah. Maybe they don't get paid to do a lot of work. I don't know. Huh. N- you know, maybe. Maybe to to sell it a little bit more, they could have just dropped some hints at well, this is a post apocalyptic New York. All the humans are gone <laughs> in New York City, where every human has been destroyed except for the few that we need every once in a while. There's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and there's a villain. You'll like it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh huh. Um. It, well, and you know, too, to kind of harp on it a little bit more. Is that you know when you've got heroes, they need something pr- to protect. Mm. You know they're not just like, and I know the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are kind of crazy guys who just you know they want to they want to do good, uh, yeah. and they're 
they're still teenage boys who just kind of have these ideals and whatnot, and they, they act upon those. But you kind of still want your heroes to protect something. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever you see Superman stuff, like he's you know flying around Metropolis, he's saving people from like falling. Cra- I don't know why there's always falling cranes from the tops of buildings. That's what <laughs> you would just think that they would figure out something else or like have like a season. Like okay, this is the top the crane on top of a building season. Everybody kind of look up when they're walking around uh-huh. because Superman doesn't have time for you. Okay, <laughs> but no, uh, the, like Metropolis is always filled with people. Uh, Gotham City is always filled with people. You see them everywhere. Even at night, you see, you know, there's stray cats or there's women walking home from their late night jobs, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, or there's, you know, punk kids hanging around outside, you know, things like that. Like all these little things, like you understand there's people that's living. Yeah. Uh, The city is alive. And you just don't see that with this reboot. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's a that's a bad example of world building in my in my opinion. Sure. Um, Yeah. So I really think that you should fill the scope with what you have. You know, you should give a good reason of why things are are cut down. Yeah. Um, I know you and I have both read The Hunger Games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, I think they did a pretty decent job of showing, like, okay, well, we don't go outside the city because, you know, the, the government is really, oh yeah, you know, bearing down. You know, mm-hmm. everybody needs to stay in their district. Right. Um. And I think that that, you know, that was really established really well. Like, yeah. it showed that each district had its own culture, depending on what it was doing. Uh, you know, and the, the one that she was in was, you know, like a mining kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think it's cool that, you know, if you're going to have that mechanic in there to, to isolate these places, that you don't just throw it out there and then forget about it just to use it as some device like that, but you actually explore it. And yeah. they did. I mean, the, you know, there were times when they did kind of break that rule and go outside of the boundaries of the mm-hmm, city. And mm-hmm. then you're like, Oh, okay. You know, we're, we're exploring the limits of the, of the world that we've created, pushing the boundaries, maybe a little bit more than we would have expected based on the explanation at first. And, mm-hmm. and that serves to make it that much more real and bigger to know that, yeah, okay. This artificial boundary maybe isn't as hard as we think it is. Ooh, yeah. I think that's a good point. Uh, I think when you're, when you're building worlds as well, like a, a lot of the things that we've been talking about are a little bit more fantastical, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, post-apocalyptic worlds, yeah. things like that. Nazca in the Valley of the Wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've been wondering too, with worlds that are based on our world, like everything yeah. that we understand about this world, do you think that sometimes creators will kind of not get lazy, but they'll mm. kind of take it easy a little bit more because they they already assume that we know most everything about this world. Well, I think I I I think there is a benefit to doing that. Yeah, you know, because if you are going to set it in the real world, especially if it's in a time and a place that is closer to the intended audience that you can take a lot of shortcuts you don't have to explain as much you can just throw out a random little bit of something and then that connects with a whole slew of experiences that that person may have had so they can fill in the gaps a lot better um it shouldn't be cause for um reduced effort or laziness on on the part because you can go too far with that and assume that oh i'm just going to say it's you know set in present day new york and then not talk about the setting at all and assume everyone fills in the blanks 
but then it'll feel empty if you don't have any sort of touch points. Right. Especially if it's, you know, uh, maybe uh, uh, if it's a book or something like that that you're reading because, you know, <laughs> you need those little touch points for your imagination to jump off of. Otherwise, you're just going to get bored. Well, yeah, even thinking about uh, – we keep bringing up New York City. There's so many different uh, – Places that everybody understands about New York City. Yeah. And so if you don't go to any of those, like if you don't walk past the Empire State Building and look mm-hmm. up, uh, if you don't see Ellis Island off in the distance, yeah. um, is it just some random big city or is it New York City? Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. um, I'm sure, you know, with other things like Seattle and with Boston, like there's a lot of different things about that. Um, even Gotham City, you know, like there's a lot of, uh, th- though it's not an actual city. Uh, in the real world, you know, it's we there's a lot of canon or a lot of things mm-hmm. that we can already base things off of. Yeah. I mean, I think there's kind of two ways. I think there's kind of two ways you can delight the reader when when it comes to the world and, and the, the setting like this. If it's some like weird uh, fictionalized uh, world that's so different than your own, you know, it can be fascinating to say, whoa, you know, they explained this. Um, this weird place, but it totally feels real to me because yeah. of how they explained it mm-hmm. and the detail they went into that. And that's that's one way to to draw your reader in. But if it's but if you're talking about the real world, um, I think what can be really exciting is when you describe something even so mundane and ordinary. But if but if you describe it in a way that totally resonates with the person who's reading, I mean that can be a source of joy because then. It just it, it can bring a flood of emotions and thoughts and mm-hmm. say yes, I like I feel like I'm inside the writer's head because they're noticing the same things that I notice about the world that no one else has ever talked about. Right. Um, and I think that's a way that you can create excitement even for a mundane world that everyone you know inhabits when you can bring out the ordinary, but maybe in a different way. Yeah, and you know a pretty good example of that is when uh, Hayao Miyazaki takes these mundane lives but then add something a little bit fantastical to them Mm -hmm. uh my sister recently i lent her my neighbor totoro Mm. which is a great kids film um and in the film these two daughters with their dad move out to the country into a new house and there's this really nice scene where the girls just kind of explore the house they run around and you see all the little pieces of like the living room the washroom the mudroom where they wash up and they're having such a great time uh, just doing the most mundane things, literally just running around your house that, you know, mm-hmm. just has ran- like just random rooms. Uh, and it was, you know, it was great. And it also alluded to um, a folklore, like kind of myth about the, the soot spirits. Hmm. Uh, so that every time they, they opened up a new room and light came in, they would out of the corner of their eye, they would just kind of like notice this little thing, like just kind of like the shadow escaping. Mm-hmm. And uh, so their dad, of course, tells them about the little myth where like these little sit spirits kind of live there, and they don't like the daylight. And you know they're they're nice spirits, of course. You know mm-hmm. they're, they're friendly, and they'll they'll decide if they want to stick around if you guys are nice or not. And you know, so it kind of like adds a little bit of adventure. And so yeah. uh, every time you know they they open up into the into the big bathroom, you see this little shadowy figure kind of coming out the the side, and it just kind of builds up the excitement. And like you said, yeah. it delights the audience. Yeah, and brings that own like. It reminds you of a time when in your childhood, you your imagination was just going constantly. Yeah. You know, everything that you saw and everything that you ran into was something was something that you could imagine was something more fantastical. Yeah. Um, 
I think a good example of taking like what we know in our world and adding something to it as well is uh, Steven Spielberg does a great job with that. Mm. Uh, I was thinking about Jurassic Park recently where it just they come to this grandiose island. You know, there's jungles, there's waterfalls, and now there's dinosaurs, <laughs> you know, and you kind of you kind of see how. It, it it pairs up the dinosaurs with like the 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 world that you already know you know like you you've seen the the trees and the jungles and the, the humidity and then you just see like these guys come through you know the like the velociraptor tri- uh like groups come through and mm-hmm. see brontosaurus reaching up to the trees and whatnot and it really just made you feel like okay this could fit in my world hmm. you know this could happen yeah and it just i mean that movie was so great when the when it first came out and everyone just kind of was uh, just connected with that world immediately. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I mean, the the I was probably a little bit too young to fully appreciate it, but the visuals of that movie were just fantastic. incredible. I mean, it was the first time, I mean, you were seeing these fantastic things, but it looked so real and so believable that it just, like, it just melted into your reality. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was definitely a magical moment in, in cinema history. Well, another good example... Uh is E.T. Hmm. Uh, when you just take this normal, what, what just seems like a normal town, normal people, they've got their, their regular lives, and you just add this little extraterrestrial in it, and now <laughs> everything goes crazy. Yeah. Um, now all of a sudden, for some reason, we're right next to like a extraterrestrial study site where the government comes through and uh, kind of wreaks havoc on the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I think that that's great, too, because you can kind of see, oh, okay, this could happen to my little town. Yeah. Um, so many good examples of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Hmm. One, one of my favorite examples, maybe switching topics a little bit, um, on the, maybe the more, um, uh, fantastical or, or, um, you know, imagined worlds is, um, so I recently decided to, to start reading through, uh, the Ender's Game series. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, started with, you know, uh, the Ender's Game novel, you know, kind of spurned on by the, uh, the the movie coming out which i actually still haven't seen no i haven't um, oh i think i did see it yeah i, I did see it yeah go ahead but uh so i, I read that book and, and the book after and I, I those 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 books for me did a really good job of creating a world and one of the coolest aspects of it was i thought like you know especially with sci-fi or um video games or whatever you can kind of talk about mechanics mm-hmm. and how like a mechanic uh is part of the world and changes the story and and almost becomes a setting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like one of the one of the coolest mechanics for me was how they treated space travel. Okay. Um, like like every like space sci fi movie has that problem of sure. Like, how do you, you know, how, how does space travel work in your world? How do you solve the the physics problem and and whatever of getting across these vast distances of the world? And most most. Um, uh, most worlds, you know, talk about you know warp drive or inertia holes, buffers, w- inertia buffers, stuff like those that. inertia buffers just save everybody from exploding <laughs> on the back of the spaceship. <laughs> yeah, so our spaceship just crashed into a planet, but I just lurch ahead a couple of feet, <laughs> just a little one bit. standing up. Because like even though everything <laughs> everything is failing on the ship, those inertia buffers they're still going. Yeah, don't think, worry about them. Think of how much ridiculous amount of power it would cause to do something like that <laughs> but Pat, don't worry they're still online they are online <laughs> okay good um but uh and you know even even ender's game has a little bit of the i think inertial dampener thing mm-hmm. but what, what i thought was awesome is that they actually um 
you know, they didn't shy away from the whole fact of um, relativity and the, the, the time frames and the distances involved. I really did like how they did that. Right. I mean, because when, when you talked about space travel, it's, I mean, they're, they're still traveling through the world. And, you know, they, they bend a couple of physics rules and say that they can get up going pretty fast, like pretty close to the speed of light. Mm-hmm. But it still means that, you know, if you're going to be going to, like, another star system or even another planet or something, it takes a massive amount of time to get right. there. And there are massive uh, differences in time. Because when you go really, really, really fast, you know, time slows down for you. Mm-hmm. And um, so the cool thing about the movie is... Okay, someone says, okay, I need to make a, a trip to another planet. You know, okay, it's going to be, let's say, a three-month trip for me or something. Well, it's three months for you, but to everyone else who's just sitting stationary relatively on a planet, you know, it may take 40 years right. for you to get there. And just that simple fact like totally changes the world and makes it feel like weird and different Mm -hmm. just to think of, okay, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to move to this other planet. But that means that depending on how far it is, everyone that I leave behind may be dead by the time I get there. And it's only been three months for me. What does that do to me as a character? Like, how does that impact me? And that's Mm -hmm. huge. Right. And it's just, it's a little mechanic like that where they, you know, maybe took a little bit from physics, took a little bit, from some places and um, and said, okay, well, what's the impact of having this in that world? What does that do to my characters? How does that change how things operate? And it's just it that that just little fact, you know, made that world much richer for me. Yeah, and I I kind of forgot about that part of the book. Uh, and you're right, it did, especially towards the end. You started realizing that this is this is a, a like a a law of their world. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how things work. And which was great because when they when they did like the final reveal that your quote unquote last simulation was the actual battle. Spoiler. Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, Ender's Game, which has been around like how long has Ender's Game been out? <laughs> oh, I mean the book decades. Yeah, the book certainly. decades. So yeah. the I'm movie, gonna, I don't know a year. Maybe? I don't care about the movie. We'll just go on the book. So decades, <laughs> you don't get an excuse. No spoiler alerts. Yeah whatever uh it's 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 the final battle okay uh but yeah and so you get that feel of that uh it just and what i like about that is that with like you said with a lot of uh sci-fi stuff they kind of just solve the problems Mm -hmm. you know uh, obviously with star trek we're just like go to warp nine just do it yeah and we're there in three days oh man everything worked out you know yeah and i like a lot of storytelling when they don't they don't solve those problems yes. just by saying like, oh, just because. Don't worry about it. I said so. Don't be afraid of your problems. Like, see see how those problems fit into your world. Right. And what, what they would mean and how people would react to those problems. And even on like a simpler point, like uh, I've, uh, as you know, and now the audience knows, I've been taking some improv workshops. Uh, and so when you do short form improv, you you do a lot of what they call scene work, where you're mm-hmm. creating a scene on, on the spot. And what they try to teach you is to not solve the problems right away, hmm. uh, which is very – you naturally want to do that. Yeah. You know, if someone across the stage is saying like, oh, my goodness, the the house is on fire. And you're not supposed to immediately be like, oh, here's a fire extinguisher. Like you just pull <laughs> it out of thin air. Yeah. That's not interesting. That's not – like no one no one's going to grasp that. But if you say like, oh, let me go get it, you go down the hallway – 
Yeah. You know, you 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 look around for it. You now find it, and you bring it back to them. It it just adds that more depth to it. Uh huh. Um, it makes it feel more fun, more real. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like you said, don't be afraid of these problems that you have to solve. Solve the problems in the story, and then people will will grasp onto it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I I really like that stuff. I mean, especially uh, in the Lord of the Rings. You know, the I guess pretty much like the whole um the whole Lord of the Rings series is them solving one problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they spent three entire books of trying to, you know, figure it out, uh, which is always like, you know, the cliche that people always talk about. They're like, why don't they just fly over and drop it down the mountain? Well, then it wouldn't be a three book story. Okay. <laughs> just deal with it. Got to suspend your disbelief a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, that's just, uh, yeah, that's, it's really important to me when you build a world that otherwise I, I don't feel connected. And even if you could bring you could build up some characters. I kind of care about that a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Like it just, it really just sets the tone for mm. so much stuff. Yeah. And, uh, even if, even if the world is wacky, you know, like in the, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, you know, where they have got like the ooze making everything huge and mutating stuff like you're just like, okay, I can, I can yeah. come along with this. Yeah. yeah. There's always certain premises that you have to accept when you go into a world, but you know, as long as you're being internally consistent with that and you create a world that has richness that comes out of those, you know, you know, initial premises, then, you know, it can be engaging. And when you when you're not consistent with those, oh man. <laughs> I I just twitch a little bit in the theater. I can't I can't handle it sometimes. <laughs> but but you just said 10 minutes ago that it was like this. Well, one of my biggest uh, things is this is a little bit. Uh, uh, so with amongst anime fans, there's there's a lot of contention with uh, Dragon Ball Z. OK, uh, that's a big popular, very popular anime. Uh, I'm not a fan of it. One of my biggest hang ups of it is there's a certain race called the Saiyans. And only amongst like after like a hundred yada yada generations, like yeah. one in a million there's the super saiyan oh and you know he's he's just he's gonna get you he's he's the 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 biggest guy all around yeah whatever um so they they established that really early on mm-hmm. and then uh, throughout the the next couple seasons everybody's a super saiyan oh <laughs> well we found that out i guess <laughs> uh and then they just get you know really ridiculous like well i'm super saiyan level two and i'm a super saiyan ascended and I, I just I can't handle that. Like, just don't don't do that to me. Please figure out another way that they can overcome this boss. I'm super special, just like everyone else. Just everybody becomes one. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if like I don't. I stopped watching the series, but I wouldn't be surprised if like just some rando human was just like, oh, I'm a Super Saiyan too. They, I didn't even know it. I've been you know, and then like they make up some like vast history. Like, oh, the Saiyans came here earlier, yeah. and now we're all Super Saiyans. Well, I mean, this this is probably a whole nother topic in and of itself but it's kind of like uh the nuclear arms escalation of storytelling where <laughs> i mean you've got something that's big and crazy and like people are like oh that's amazing but then you feel like you have to top it and then top it again and then right. top that and then top it again and then you're like and then it's just gets to levels that are out of control right and so um yeah so av- avoiding that happening in your world is uh is probably a whole nother topic which it's and it's hard to avoid that when you've got series, you know, that it's very episodic, like, oh, we've got this new problem. Yeah. How do we solve it? Because the new problem obviously has to be more or or harder 
to fix than the previous one because otherwise you would already know be like oh we already fixed this problem last episode yeah we already know how to do that um so Hmm. yeah it's just it's just a rough part of storytelling but i think that when you when you have that i think that leads towards the idea that maybe we should have shorter stories as far as like Mm. tv shows and stuff like that yeah um i think some of my favorite tv shows are very short yeah. series runs like you know trigon is like what 14 episodes sure mm-hmm. um you know it just really puts a point on it and we're done yeah i think we need to be okay with being done sometimes yeah um, i mean that I, th- I think that's one thing that sometimes british tv does a little bit better than american tv yeah maybe doctor who notwithstanding <laughs> but <laughs> but um i mean take sherlock for example oh I mean, yeah that's one thing where it's like Every year or so, you get three episodes. Right. Uh, and they're completely different. Like, they're different uh, problems to solve. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, we beat Moriarty. But is there a guy behind Moriarty? <laughs> Moriarty version two? Yeah. You know, they like, hopefully they don't ever do stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they do such a great job. Like, okay, this is where we solve this completely separate problem. Yeah. And this is where we solve, like, you losing your lunch for the day. I don't know. You know, Sherlock <laughs> figures out a lot of things. I, you know, it'd be funny is uh, uh, an episode of Sherlock where he just fi- like he just fixes all, the whole entire episode is all mundane problems. That would be pretty good. That would be pretty good. Um, we should send them a, a letter to BBC. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's that's pretty good. I think we covered a pretty good uh, spectrum of what we like in world building. Uh huh. And so to end the episode. I thought we would do another phrase, and this episode's phrase is "beat around the bush." Ah, I see. I'm sure you've heard that before. Uh huh. Um, do you know what that implies? Yeah. So stop avoiding the uh, the the main topic here, or you know, like going around the fringes of something. Like just talk about what you really want to talk about, or the real problem. And it's interesting that that's what it implies because where it comes from is the idea of uh, hunters when they would hunt like pheasant or birds, any kind of bird. Okay. They would they would set up, they would take multiple hunters, they would set up, you guys ready to shoot, you know, whatever comes out of a bush, and there'd be guys who literally would just beat on the bush. They're like, huh. ah, get out of the bush, get out of the bush. And then the, the birds, you know, they fly out, uh-huh. and you shoot them down. Yeah. And now you've got dinner. Excellent. Uh, and so I think it's kind of a little bit interesting that the intention of the beating around the bush is to get the actual thing you want out. Hmm. But when we use the phrase, it's well, you're not you're you're not getting the the actual topic out. Oh, interesting. You're kind of you're kind of meandering around this. Like the visual is like for me when you use it is yeah. like you're meandering a, around a bush and you're not diving in. Yeah, you're hemming and hawing about like you know dealing with the thing that needs to be dealt with. Right, but where yeah. but where it comes from is you're actually diving in, beating the bush, getting everything out. So huh. yeah, it's a little I, bit uh, interesting. I wonder what uh how that phrase twisted and turned throughout the years. Yeah. Oh, that's always fun is like the the linguistic game of telephone throughout generations. <laughs> yeah. Uh so if you guys wanna either send us a phrase or send us any comments that you wanted about the the episode today, you can send that to neverendingnarrative at gmail dot com. Uh you can also tweet us at N E narrative uh and I'm at Matthew J. Yeager on Twitter. I just had to remember so that. I'm so confident about that. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I recently changed it. And so I am 99.9% sure that that is what my Twitter handle is now. 
Uh, if not, you'll hear a different one on the next episode. Matt, did you hit your head? Do you know who you are? <laughs> <laughs> I am things, Pat. Everything is so taken up. Well, you're not, but you're not Pat on Twitter because I don't think you have a Twitter account, do you? I do. I just don't do anything with it. Oh, that. okay. No, fair <laughs> enough. So if you want to find Pat randomly and tweet at him and see if he'll ever tweet back at you, uh, you can you can go ahead and try and do that. Maybe sure. I'll I'll talk him into doing a little bit more tweeting than he's ever done in his life. Grumble, 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 grumble. Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening, guys. And that is our show for for this week. See y'all later. All you've ever wanted was honeymoon.